Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true and it's uh, powerful. And we pray that you prepare our hearts to hear what generosity means in light of the gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Um, the bulldog scarf has been left uh, in my seat. I don't want to distract anyone. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. So that can stay there from now on. Now, um, we are continuing our series uh, through um, gospel-shaped living at present. And uh, last week, John spoke about serving in a selfish world. And today we're looking at a kind of a related topic, that of generosity. You know, discussing generosity in church life can be a delicate subject. We don't want to give the false impression that we're a money-focused, money-driven ministry. Nor do the ones who typically do the teaching, the pastors, want to be seen to be kind of feathering their own nest in some way. Yet the amount of time taken up with the subject of money, how we relate to it, And the impact it has on us throughout the scriptures is such that we cannot ignore it. In fact, someone, perhaps someone with a little bit too much time on their hands, I don't know, has gone through the book of Luke and made the claim that one in six verses in the gospel of Luke is actually on the subject of money, how it relates to us and the like. And as the topic for this week suggests, it's a stingy world we live in. On the one hand, we are a consumer society. We're encouraged to be a consumer society, to open our wallets, to be generous in our spending, though as a rule, not for the benefit of others. Spend by all means, though overwhelmingly on yourself. And all the while, there's this other little voice inside our heads that says, do we have enough? Am I I going to be able to retire comfortably? Will I be able to send my kids to the right schools? How much can we save for the next holiday? For the new car that we need? Or what about that essential phone upgrade? It's just so uncool to have an old model. And in the eyes of the general public, regardless of whether we are looking to spend money or save it, the focus is fundamentally a self-centred one. And let's be honest, none of us are totally immune from that attitude from time to time. The the stingy, self-serving society we're in the midst of means that we'd be naive and and perhaps even a little self-righteous to suggest that we cannot be seduced by these thoughts at some stage or another. Yet we know the church is called to think differently. As Christians, we are to be channels of God's blessings not reservoirs, keeping them for ourselves. God blesses believers in so many and varying ways so that we can in turn be a blessing to others. Do you understand? Not that we keep it all for ourselves. It's just that we pour out God's blessings to us and we pass it on. Now someone might ask, why not keep your finances, your time, your resources or your talents for yourself? Doesn't it make sense to shore up your own status first? Reduce the mortgage quickly. 
grow your career, enhance your reputation. Once I've established myself, my mortgage is under control, I've got the promotion that I need, then I'll be in a better position to give of my time, resources, money or gifting towards the Lord's work. Well, what's wrong with this view, friends, is when our focus is on the temporal things of this life, we'll rarely experience the wonder of a wholehearted Christian life where we are are a partaker in the ministry of the gospel. I wonder, do you know the excitement of seeing what God has blessed you with being used to further the ministry of the gospel? It is a great joy. And in this sense, the church's attitude towards generosity ought to be so different to the world around us. And in and of itself, it ought to be a powerful testimony to the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's it's simply being able to have a conversation with your non-Christian friends, family, perhaps work colleagues, about why it is that you serve in church life, about why it is that you actually give money to church, is a tremendous opportunity in and of itself. I had someone not long ago come to me and say, my in-laws give 10% of what they earn to this church they go to. Do you do that? And out of that comes a tremendous opportunity to explain that it's not about a compulsion. It's about a desire to want to share what God has blessed me with. Well, as Paul writes to the church at Corinth, we find one of the apostles' goals in ministry was to raise funds in the churches he visited to help other Christians that were in need. And this is particularly so at this time in the church at Jerusalem. Now, we saw in Acts just recently, the church in Jerusalem was blessed. People coming to the Lord en masse. But we reached a point in Acts where we saw that the church faced great great persecution, great opposition, where its leaders were arrested, persecuted, and yes, even killed. The people were ostracised with no easy means of providing for themselves because many of them were banished from their own families for proclaiming Christ as Lord and Saviour. And as he writes to the people at Corinth, encouraging them to help in this ministry, Paul points them to the example of the churches in Macedonia. And as he does so, a window of understanding is open for us to better appreciate the joy of a generous heart. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're just going to read the first nine verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read what Paul has to say. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he had, as he had started, he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, 
see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And as Paul writes these verses, we're going to look quickly this morning at a contradiction that he points out, at a pattern that we might follow. He gives us an exhortation and he gives us a fundamental principle of the Christian faith. The contradiction in the first four four verses, and, and as he starts sharing this contradiction with us, he points out the church at Macedonia. Church at Macedonia included the church at, Cor- at um, Philippi, at Thessalonica, and at Berea. And we're familiar with those churches. Paul wrote a, an epistle, a letter to Philippi. He wrote two to the church at Thessalonica. And we know the Bereans were well known as, uh, as a church that diligently searched the scriptures to confirm that what they were being taught was the true word of God. Now, while this area was in itself reasonably fertile and well-off, the Christians, we read, were facing hard times. In fact, that term severe test of affliction points to the believers being tested as to whether their claims of being followers of Jesus Christ were genuine. Could they hold up under the harassment that God's people face at the hands of the world in some form or another? We know that's going to take place. Jesus said it would. We're also told there that their testing included extreme poverty. The word extreme poverty literally refers to down in the depth poverty. What we're seeing is the people that had hit absolute rock bottom from a material financial perspective. Yet through their affliction and poverty, there are two things that stand out. Verses 2 and 3, we hear they gave sacrificially beyond their own ability to do so. They gave more generously than their limited means and their difficult circumstances might have warranted. You see, here's a group of Christians that focused on what they had, not on what they did not have. They understood the richness of being a child of God. Verse 4, we're told that they gave of their own initiative before receiving any suggestion or pressure from others to try and help with the fund that Paul was raising to help the Christians who were suffering in Jerusalem. Instead, we're told that they wanted to extend favour to the poorer saints. In fact, as we read this passage, it appears that Paul hadn't even actually asked them to contribute to this fund, knowing that the Macedonians had such a poor economic condition. Yet they still begged him for the privilege, the honour of showing grace through their practical support for their brothers and sisters in need in Jerusalem. Do you see the contradiction? Tested, persecuted, afflicted, dirt poor, and yet they gave sacrificially beyond their own ability of their own initiative. Like every believer with a clear recognition of where they have come from and what they have in Christ, the Macedonians' example was radically countercultural, so different to the world around them, to the world around us today. So how does this work? How does one give 
How does one that has so little give so generously? Can you just turn with me quickly to Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Luke? No, let's try again. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And, and at the end of Mark chapter 12, there's a story that we're really familiar with. It's a story of a widow that puts two small copper coins in the treasury. The setting is we find Jesus uh, sitting near the treasury with his disciples and as was his normal practice, he took the opportunity to teach the disciples. And we're told, we're told in Mark chapter 12 and verse 41 that as they're sitting and watching, there are wealthy people placing large sums of money in the offering box, as it were. And then as they look on, there's the poor widow comes along. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get these word pictures in my head. So my picture of this widow is there's an old lady and maybe she's got a walking stick and her clothes are pretty tatty and she hobbles up and she's got a couple of copper coins and she puts it in. And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had to live on. Now, we understand that uh, Jesus' main lesson here is that we understand God wants all of us. He wants us to be totally committed. But there's a a question that, that we might well ask. She put in her two small copper coins, but in reality, what difference does her small contribution make, practically speaking? She put in what was the equivalent of maybe one or two cents today. What difference is that going to make to the offering box? Well, the difference is that God takes the heart's desire and multiplies it in ways that we cannot imagine at times. Did God need her two copper coins? As we come back to Acts chapter, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, did God need what little the churches at Macedonia could offer to Paul's Jerusalem fund? What difference could that small offering that they could offer make? Well, it makes a difference because the the one to whom we receive all things, the one who owns all things, who creates and sustains all things, counts the willing self-sacrifices of great value. He considers it of great value. He sees the willing, generous heart of great worth. And he will continue to use these attitudes and the outpouring of grace from one to another to build his kingdom. Well, we move on in in verse 5 to a pattern. It points to a pattern that is simple yet sometimes missed in the discussion about what can only be described as as a countercultural Christian ideal that of overflowing generosity towards others. We're told there in verse 5, they gave first to the Lord and only then to Paul. Their preeminent concern was how best to serve Christ. So great was their commitment to him, so exceptional was their desire to serve their God, they refused to see their economic situation as a hindrance to sharing in this ministry. 
They did not see their circumstances disqualify them in any way from sharing in this ministry. Instead, the churches in Macedonia saw this as a concrete way to share in the ministry of Paul. And though they didn't know it at the time, what their sacrificial offering meant was that we look on even today and we give, we're given a radical, powerful example of how we can be like. Who would have thought their small offering could be used by God to affect so many others? Just like that widow had no idea that at that time she was putting those, those two copper coins in that money box. Jesus was taking the opportunity to teach his disciples and by extension us how to overflowingly, willingly, generously build his kingdom. The impact of the Macedonian willing, generous act led Paul to an exhortation. A call, if you will, for the Corinthian church and by extension every one of us to follow their example. Now we know that Paul had previously said in the first epistles to the Corinthians that they lacked no spiritual gift. Here he encourages them to excel, to go above and beyond in the outworking of this most underrated, misunderstood ministry. Now we know that uh, if we look at the list of gifts, that giving is one of those gifts. And for some, giving is as natural as is teaching or discernment or hospitality is to others. But we know that it does not negate each of us being generous in our attitude towards giving of our time and resources to the Lord. Any more than saying, well, mercy is a gift, a spiritual gift. So maybe that means I don't need to show too much mercy towards my brothers and sisters. Or service is down on those lists of gifts. So why are you guys always asking, always encouraging us to serve in church life? It's not my gift. Friends, that's not an option for us. Just as they excelled in many things, the Corinthians, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, they would also excel in this act of grace. Do you notice what Paul calls it? An act of grace. And as you read through this uh, short passage, you'll notice that that word referred to on a number of occasions. At this point, Paul wants us to appreciate the true joy of sharing. I wonder how often as the offering bag goes past on on a Sunday morning or as we we type in our numbers to give electronically, I wonder how much we actually appreciate that this is an opportunity to show an act of grace. Is our service in church life seen as an act of grace or is there some sort of root of bitterness when we consider how much time we spend, how much time we sacrifice? As I was thinking about these things a couple of weeks ago, I thought why might be some of the hindrances to a right mindset in relation to being generous in a stingy world. And I've thought of just four things, four things that I've either heard from other Christians or I have to make a confession, I've actually thought myself from time to time. I wonder if our generosity sometimes equate to how content we are with church life. 
Friends, if, if you're unhappy with uh, the colour of the carpet or the drapes or the non-drapes around here, if you're unhappy with the teaching, if you're unhappy with the leadership direction, there are biblical responses to that. Lack of generosity is not one of them. As if you're taking some sort of punitive measure to teach someone a lesson, maybe. How easy it is to have our support of a local church determined by our own opinions of it. The real issue with this mindset is that we do not give of our time and resources based on personality, but on a relationship. It's not about how much I might like the pastors or get on with them or whatever. It's how much I appreciate the grace of God in my own life, recognising that it is he who we give to. It is he first and foremost that we serve. What about the thought that I've heard, well, the Lord wants me to provide for my own family. That's got to be my priority. Reduce debt. We live in such a godless society, I've got to make sure I've got the funds to send my kids to the right school. Now, while these things may be reasonable, they fail to convey in real terms what we as Christians love to to confess. And I'm sure every one of us has said or thought this at some time. The truth that all we have belongs to him. All we have is from him. Yet sometimes our actions... Reveal we can be more comfortable with the phrase that I have a friend at work that likes to say. He likes to say generosity starts at home. The inference is look after yourself first and foremost. Friends, don't be led astray in believing that your heavenly father will not provide for you. That you need to build your own storehouses. God will provide. But what about the simple fact, well, God doesn't need my money. Now, this might be true. And you, whether you or I are generous or stingy in giving of our time and resources, his plans are not going to be frustrated. He's a sovereign God. The gospel of Jesus Christ will not be hindered or undermined by our stinginess. Yet here's the kicker. Please take note, friends. Here's the, here's the important thing to consider. There are a few joys greater few experiences more enriching, few times when our faith is not deepened, few instances when we are not led to wonder at God's mighty hand when we are led to appreciate by his grace that our small act of service is used by him as part of that majestic plan of salvation. What a joy it is to know that we are in partnership with that through sharing the gifts, the grace that God has given us. And finally, there's a simple fact for some of us, well, we just don't have much. We haven't got much. I don't earn much. Think back to Jesus, what Jesus said. Some have the means to give much at little cost. Some give little at great cost. Who do you think honours Christ most? When it comes to money in particular, there's no set figure or percentage. Paul has already already expressed in the first letter to the Corinthians that as they meet each week, they should take up an offering. 
But there's no amount that would see God on it. Rather, Paul says our generosity ought to lead others to see our commitment to Jesus Christ as an expression of genuine love, as it's, it's lived out in a practical way. Friends, let's excel in this act of grace also. You know what? All that we've been looking at this morning is so different to the attitude of the general population around us, so hard to truly put into practice, that the next verse helps us to put it all into perspective. You know, the reality is there are generous people in the world. People like Bill Gates, I don't know whether he's at the moment the richest man in the world or the second richest, it tends to move around each year, but he's one of the richest men on the face of the planet. And he has, or, has already been quoted as saying that the bulk of his wealth will be given to charity when he dies, though all of his, Christ, all of his children will be well cared for. Warren Buffett earned his um, billions uh, on the stock market. He gives away billions also. Uh, I don't mean to, to point everyone to the Bulldogs, but the... The vice president of the Western Bulldogs, Susan Alberti, she and her husband are self-made multi-millionaires. And I was reading an article during the week that said uh, she has given away $25 million uh, to charities that she considers worthy. But without the foundational principle that verse 9 illuminates, that of gospel-shaped, grace-inspired, overflowing generosity, we might conclude that the wealthy philanthropists in the world, that's a difficult word, who give away large amounts of their own money to worthy causes are the example to follow. I mean, their example is get rich and then give. But even Warren Buffett recently, as he was receiving an award because of his generosity, got up and said, really, this award ought to go to those people struggling who still open their wallets. Because to his credit, he was able to admit that he never ever gave any money away that he needed. It was always excess. That's the pattern of the world. If you've got it spare, that's okay. Verse 9 shows us there's a different way. This verse explores the hows of Paul's challenge to be generous. We're confronted with Jesus Christ, first as one who is mighty to save and then as one who is worthy to follow. The incarnation where Jesus Christ lays aside the full use of his attributes, not the possessions of them, in order to experience the human condition. All the temptations, injustice, hate, jealousy, hypocrisy, all the selfishness that he lived in the midst of, yet he was without sin that he might provide what we cannot, reconciliation with God. A restoring of a relationship that we cannot accomplish for ourselves. God invites you and I to experience the fullness of the grace that he so freely offers in Christ. For it is only in Christ that we can truly know the freedom to show grace in our own lives as we have experienced it for ourselves. The overflowing generosity of his unmerited grace. 
we read there that Jesus Christ, in verse 9, Jesus Christ endured the poverty of the cross so the riches of the kingdom can be credited to our account. That we can pass that on. Being mighty to save is at the core of the gospel message. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Now verse 9 also points to Jesus as being an example that is worthy to follow. Though rich in glory, he chose to willingly forsake what was rightfully his, that we might be blessed. In effect, Paul says, just as Jesus gave himself completely for the salvation of mankind, so we should give ourselves completely to the Lord in his service. In context, the generous stewardship of our finances and service ought to be the natural outpouring of a deep appreciation of all that we've had poured out for us. Now, as we conclude this morning, I know there are lots of generous people at Canterbury Gardens, people who serve. There are generous people who give financially. And I, I sort of thought, well, maybe it'd be nice to get some people up to say what that looks like. But there are two problems with that. First of all, I really don't know who they are, and that's right. And secondly, people who are generous are doing it for the Lord. They're not doing it for man's uh, praise. What does being generous in a stingy world look like on the ground? Well, can I just quickly say that if you leave here this morning thinking, well, Mike told us we should give more, then you've missed the point. This is not a prosperity gospel we're talking about. Nor do we seek to have you serve in this place or give out of guilt or even some sort of sense of duty. Instead, we ask you to ask yourselves, as we as a leadership team have asked ourselves, what act of grace could we be willing to express as we acknowledge how my willing offering can be used in God's master plan to expand his kingdom? Our starting point ought not be how much we should give, but how generous can we be in sharing our gifts, talents and resources and yes, finances too, and giving abundantly according to what he has given us in Christ. We don't ask that you give more necessarily, but that you give generously as a true act of grace. That our great God will take our sacrifice here at Canterbury Gardens and multiply it according to his abundant grace toward us. Not simply for our own benefit, but for the community around us. That as the ministry of the gospel goes out from here, whether locally or abroad, he will be glorified. That you experience the blessing of being part of that. That your generous acts of grace stemming from an abiding understanding of all you have in Christ will enrich your own walk with him that we as a group of God's people will set free, be set free from the lies of the enemy with the world's fixation on the temporal, on the here and now. I just want to close by reading um, Paul's words. Paul spends two chapters in Corinthians, chapter 8 and chapter 9, talking about uh, money, about giving, about how to go about that appropriately. Let me just close by reading 
2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows abundantly will also reap abundantly. Now we understand that, that Paul's not just talking about offering here. We understand that. Each one must give as he is dedicated in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now listen to what he says here. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you as a group of your people this morning. We recognise that indeed your righteousness endures forever. We recognise that as a group of your people we have been blessed in ways that sometimes we take for granted, sometimes we don't fully appreciate. I pray that you would give us a real vision of what it means to share in this act of grace also, that we might be generous of our time, our resources, of our finances, that you would be glorified and that we would know in you the joy of sharing in this grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.